Chapter 5 Training School Back in 1989, all recruits to the Metropolitan Police began their 20 weeks of residential training at Hendon Police Training School in large cohorts of about 120 recruits. At any one time, there would have been about three cohorts training at Hendon simultaneously, overlapping by about six weeks. My cohort was green intake, and in front of us by about six weeks were blue intake, in front of them by six weeks were yellow intake. After our first six weeks, we rejoiced at no longer being the clueless newbies when purple intake started. It's fair to say that Hendon was something of a conveyor belt, churning out a fresh batch of recruits every six weeks. It's a measure of how things have changed, that from about 2010, almost none of the forces in the UK were allowed to recruit for budgetary reasons, which led to police training schools closing and the dire state of policing that resulted. They split each cohort into different classes of about 20 recruits. My class was E-class, and our sister class that we did certain things with, e.g. drill and physical training, was F-class. Every class had three instructors. There was one sergeant and two PCs. The sergeants were addressed as Sarge, and they told us to address the PCs as Staff. The first few days at Hendon came as a bit of a shock to almost everyone. Only those who had previously served in the armed forces found the regime familiar. It was an unambiguously disciplined environment, where we marched everywhere as a class, were inspected on parade in the morning as an intake, and the instructors did not tolerate infringements in discipline or standards. On the very first day, our intake gathered in the main auditorium, still dressed in our civvy clothing, for our first welcome briefing. They gave us a long list of do's and don'ts, which boiled down to something like, very soon you will be ceased to be a private citizen. You will belong to Her Majesty the Queen and the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, and you will do exactly what he tells you to do. We were then told that a very senior officer would soon join us to take our affirmation, oath. A rather shouty sergeant advised that when he called us to attention, we should get up and stand smartly at attention until the senior officer told us to sit back down. He practised with us a few times, and once he was satisfied that we no longer looked like we were doing a Mexican wave at a football match, we waited for the senior officer's arrival. After a couple of minutes, we heard the door of the auditorium swing open and immediately the sergeant bawled, Green intake, attention! More or less as one, we jumped to our feet. I remember looking around and feeling oddly moved by the sight of this motley crew of civilians trying their best to stand at attention, all suddenly looking quite serious, even though we were still wearing what we'd arrived in. Some of us were in business attire, others in jeans, jumpers and sweatshirts. It suddenly struck me that we were just about to become part of something much bigger and so much more important than ourselves. A senior officer, who I later found out was an assistant commissioner, strode down to the front of the auditorium to address us and told us we could sit down. 
This particular officer and what he said made a huge impression on me that day, and this stayed with me for the rest of my career. He was an impressive-looking character in his 50s, with short silver hair, ramrod straight posture, and an immaculate uniform with lots of metal ribbons and silver braid. He welcomed us into the family of the Metropolitan Police Service, the greatest and the oldest police force in the world, where we would be very soon become crown servants of Her Majesty the Queen. He told us that we would form an unbreakable bond and find lifelong fellowship with those officers who had served in the past, the present and the future. He told us lots of other things, but I particularly remember him saying that from this point on, we would need to be the people who kept a calm head when everyone else was losing theirs, and that we would sometimes need to do things that terrified us. He described how we were about to set out on a journey that was unlike any other, and we'd be doing things and seeing things that we could not yet even imagine. There was complete silence in that auditorium as he spoke, and it made the hairs stand up on the back of my neck. Every word of what he said that day came true for me. We then took our affirmation together, line by line, repeating after him. I do solemnly and sincerely declare and affirm that I will well and truly serve our Sovereign Lady the Queen in the office of constable, without favour or affection, malice or ill will, and that I will, to the best of my power, cause the peace to be kept and preserved and prevent all offences against the persons and properties of Her Majesty's subjects, and that while I continue to hold the said office, I will, to the best of my skill and knowledge, discharge all the duties thereof faithfully according to law. And that was it. We had been committed to the thin blue line and to a career preserving the Queen's peace. Everyone left that room buzzing and we felt about 10 foot tall as we went off to get measured up for our uniforms. The training school stores were staffed by comical, world-weary but kindly veterans who'd seen it all a thousand times before. With a single glance, they knew exactly what waist size, leg length, collar and chest measurement you were. However, there were a few odd-shaped recruits who found themselves on the wrong end of comments from the police tailors, who teased them about how their arms were too long or how their head was too big for their body. Some of my classmates were big, strapping lads in their 30s, whilst others had only turned 19 and had barely started shaving so we were a mixed bunch. We all giggled at each other when trying on helmets that were far too small that made us look like Stan Laurel or ones that were far too big that made us look like we had buckets on our heads. Police uniforms have changed beyond recognition in the past 30 years. A uniformed police officer really looked quite something back then. The old uniforms with the smart tunics, silver buttons, whistle chains and iconic British police helmets inspired confidence. They had an air of authority that the modern uniform doesn't with its high-vis jackets, 
one size fits no one combat style trousers and in some forces bloody baseball caps which makes officers look like gormless 14 year olds. However, the old uniforms were pretty impractical for the rough and tumble of policing. Not only that, we had no protective equipment or means of defending ourselves whatsoever. Today, officers all wear bullet and knife-proof body armour, carry retractable steel batons and incapacitant spray. We had no armour and a rather pathetic wooden truncheon which was stored in a pocket down the side of your trouser leg and was next to useless in a fight. They issued our female colleagues with wooden truncheons which were comically small and some of the guys used to hit each other with them as hard as possible just for a laugh to demonstrate how pointless they were. British police uniforms have strayed too far away from that traditional look that was once the envy of the world. I would love to see more of a compromise between tradition and practicality, starting with getting rid of those horrible high-vis jackets. As well as looking awful, have you ever tried sneaking up on someone in the dark in a high-vis jacket? It doesn't work. When we got back to our rooms, most of us put everything on and stood staring at ourselves in the mirror in excitement and disbelief. Our instructors gave us a lesson on how to iron the long-sleeved white shirts properly how to put pin-sharp creases in the trousers, and how to iron creases into the front of the arms of the dark blue serge woolen tunics. We also had to learn how to bull our shoes with black shoe polish and droplets of water to make them shine like glass. Every class had recruits who were ex-army and they showed the rest of us how to do it. They also earned themselves a few extra quid or a beer by bullying other recruits' boots and shoes for them. To our considerable amusement, we even had to iron sharp creases into the front and back of our white training shorts, which we wore with light blue cotton vest tops. We also had to wear these horrendous looking white socks and white rubber plimsolls, which needed to be regularly re-whitened with liquid shoe whitener. Stood in a line, we looked like something out of a 1930s Pathé News film, and we hammed it up accordingly. I say, Johnny, bet you can't wait to give us Huns a good bashing, eh? Yes, old chap, do you think we'll be leaving dear old Blighty awfully soon? Etc, etc. Once we had our uniforms sorted, it was time to be taught drill and how to march by the drill instructor, who was an ex-NCO in a guards regiment. Each class, together with their sister class, was put through their paces over and over on the drill square until the majority of us got the hang of it. Again, this was where the ex-military recruits came into their own and in my class we had Vince who had until very recently been a grenadier guard. He was incredibly patient with the slow learners and between him and our class captain, who was also ex-army, they whipped us into shape in the late afternoons and evenings after classes finished. Every morning was a frenzy of polishing, ironing and checking each other over for the tiniest piece of fluff or dust on our uniforms before the parade. We used to wrap our hands in sticky parcel tape and dab every inch of ourselves and each other to keep our uniforms immaculate. We knew that if just one person let us down, the whole class would be punished with extra duties until we got it right as a team. I can remember one of my classmates almost crying with frustration when someone accidentally stepped on his toe 
badly scuffing the polished shine about five minutes before morning parade started. Vince told him to take the boot off and he quickly and expertly rebuffed it just in time. It was this spirit of selflessness and teamwork combined with a strong sense of individual responsibility that bound us closely as a class and as an intake and underlined the strong sense that we were part of something much bigger and more important than ourselves. We also had loads of laughs, and that's my overriding memory of training school. We mercilessly took the piss out of each other and the instructors when they weren't in the room, and we played childish and stupid jokes on each other. A cadet would come back to his room to find everything, bed, wardrobe, desk, chair, all turned upside down and balanced precariously in a huge, wobbly pile in the middle of his room. The swimming pool was always good for a laugh. Twice a week, we would all have to get changed into our swimming costumes and briefly shower in the freezing cold water before standing in a line, in number order, at attention, by the side of the pool, waiting for the physical training instructor to join us. It was absolutely forbidden to get in the pool until the instructor told us to get in and I don't doubt that they enjoyed keeping us there shivering for as long as possible. The Olympic-sized pool was like a mill pond, and on one occasion someone got pulled from behind and toppled backwards into the pool, causing a huge tidal wave. He climbed out spluttering and coughing and got back in line just before the instructor walked out of his office. I remember the instructor going mad, seeing the huge ripples in the pool and shouting, Who's been in the pool? Who's been in my pool? He stalked up and down the line of recruits glaring at everyone until he got to the guy who was stood dripping like a drowned rat. Did you get in my pool? Yes, staff. Why did you get in my pool before I told you to get in? I forgot, staff. Forgot what? I forgot that I wasn't allowed in the pool. He then turned to the recruit standing beside him. Why did you not stop him from getting in my pool? I I'm sorry, staff. I don't know. By this time, of course, we were all trying to stifle giggles and it was actually a relief when we were all ordered to get down and do press-ups as a punishment for letting him get in the pool. The classroom sessions and learning felt relentless because there was a lot to learn. Having a university degree didn't help at all because it was all rote learning and everyone had to know reams and reams of criminal legislation word perfectly. Acts, sections, subsections and definitions of burglary, theft, deception, assaults, criminal damage, road traffic offences and so on. There were tests at the end of every week which determined whether we would be allowed to progress to the next stage of training. Cadets who failed were offered support. But if they didn't make the grade, they either got backclassed, i.e. sent back six weeks, or binned. If someone suffered an injury or experienced family problems, they were offered the opportunity to go back six weeks to join the next intake. I can remember how upsetting it was for those who got backclassed, as they had to leave the group that had become such a close-knit unit. The learning from the classroom lessons and exams was reinforced with lots of role-playing practicals, where we had to take it in turns to play the shopkeeper, victim, witness, assailant, bus driver, etc., with a classmate playing the part of the police officer. Everyone would stand around watching, and then the instructor would debrief the whole thing, and we would discuss our rationale and the nuances of our thinking and decision-making. These role-play exercises usually became a great source of entertainment. 
Afterwards, we would take the piss out of one another if we'd put in an abysmal performance or made a completely ridiculous decision. There was lots of physical training too, together with lessons in self-defence and restraint techniques. They taught us how to restrain people with wrist locks, arm locks, how to make someone comply by using pressure points, and generally how to make people do what you wanted with the minimum amount of fuss. We would work in pairs in the gym, doing the routines over and over again until we got it right. Many of these basic police holds and locks had been in use for decades and they're still taught today. In 30 years of regular refresher training, I learned lots of different self-defence techniques. Sometimes we would be taught the latest fads from the USA or Israel, but to be honest, when I needed them, I always returned to the simple but very effective stuff that I was taught right at the start at Hendon. I particularly enjoyed the running, and we had to regularly repeat the initial entry requirement to run one and a half miles in 12 minutes, as well as lots of push-ups and sit-ups. At that stage in my life, I was pretty fit, and usually managed to do the run in under eight minutes. The current police fitness test has been criticised for being too easy, and to be fair, my observations of many new officers in the past 10 or 15 years would support that view. Many relatively young officers are very out of shape. There's also no real incentive to maintain a healthy weight or fitness, and I've never known or even heard of an officer losing their job as a result of poor fitness or being overweight. In the 1990s, the police also did away with the height restriction, which until that time was 5 foot 8 for men. In my likely unpopular opinion, the abolition of the height restriction, together with the relaxing of the fitness requirements to the point where fitness barely matters, has resulted in the recruitment of many police officers who do not exactly command respect from the public. The reality is that frontline policing can be quite a brutal and physical job, and you rely on your colleagues to be able to look after you and to be able to look after themselves. If you find yourself crude with someone who can do neither, that is not a good situation to be in when confronted by a large angry person at 2am during a domestic incident. I accept that the height restriction will not be reimposed and the Greek police had a finding against them in the EU courts as recently as 2017 for trying to impose a height minimum on candidates. However, it would be reassuring to know that the officer sent to help you when you dial 999 isn't going to be bent double, clutching their side, coughing, wheezing and sweating profusely after running 50 yards in pursuit of a criminal on a hot day. My 20 weeks at Hendon flew by and we all began to get excited about finishing and finally getting our first operational posting. But first we had our passing out ceremony to prepare for. On this day, we would officially become police officers, receive our warrant cards, and be joined by proud family and friends to see us on the parade square. We also had the small matter of the final exam to sit and pass. So our days, evenings, and weekends were filled with relentless studying, marching practice, and preparations for the big day. In our last week, my class all sat and passed the final exam, much to our relief. Passing was far from being a done deal, and quite a few people failed it in other classes. After clambering over each other at the notice board, we then find out where our postings would be. This first posting was crucial to everyone, and we had all given several preferences of where we wanted to go. 
I had asked to go to L District in South London because I knew it was hectic and I wanted to be in right in the thick of things. We all yearned for action, so imagine my dismay when not only did I not get my first choice, but I didn't get my second choice either. The Met had posted me to Z District, which was a semi-rural area right on the outskirts of London. I was to be posted to Sutton, which is the largest borough between Croydon and Epsom. I'd never heard of it, but I knew that Z District was pretty quiet compared to the inner city boroughs like Lambeth, Hackney and Camden. I was distraught. I went to see my teaching staff to see if I could get my posting changed. The staff apologetically told me that the decision was pretty much set in stone, unless I could find someone to swap with me. They told me not to worry because if I didn't like it at the end of my two-year probation, I could ask to move. They might as well have told me I could move in 18 years, and I returned to my room very unhappy, hearing mates chattering excitedly about where they were going. It seemed like everyone else had more or less got the posting they had asked for, and it felt very unfair to me. I asked around to see if anyone wanted a swap, but I knew what the answer would be, and sure enough, no one wanted to go to Z District. I decided to try and put it to the back of my mind and focus on preparing for the passing out parade. The big day in June 1989 arrived. We made sure that we had ironed everything and that our boots were spotless and polished. We were to be inspected by the Commissioner himself, the much-loved Sir Peter Imbert, and we would march with the band of the Royal Marines. So it all felt very grand and important. Our families started to arrive and there were lots of tears, hugs and the inevitable photographs. It was nice seeing the families of classmates we'd got to know so well. Some of them had kids and they'd really struggled emotionally with the separation for so many weeks. In those days, the Met was unique in British policing in that people joined not only from all over the UK, but from many Commonwealth countries too. During my time, I never got tired of listening to all the regional and international accents of my colleagues and their families, many of whom had travelled a long way for this passing out ceremony. My parents were there, of course, and for them this was the second time they had experienced this event. It was a very emotional day, and at the end of an intense five months, we all said our goodbyes, wishing each other luck and promised to stay in touch. I find it sad that police recruits no longer have the amazing bonding experience of attending a training school together. It was so much fun and we learned how to operate as a team and how to look after each other. During those 20 weeks, I formed incredibly strong friendships that would last my entire career. <laughs>